0: When people say, like for me, and for years, and what most people say is, I'm just training really hard, and that's why I'm tired. And yeah, you're right, but it's deeper than just a superficial tired that people complain about all the time. It's, it's a biological thing.
1: This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to Soulpre.com. Today on this episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest is the winner of Ironman Maryland back in 2014. He also has a 70.3 win at Eagleman under his belt in 2015. Um, Somewhat more impressively and a little more mysterious, he worked on Wall Street for nearly a decade before leaving, so we're going to talk about that. And I think just yesterday, graduated with your MBA from Temple, is that correct? That's absolutely right. All right. So... Welcome to the show today, Matt Bach. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. So I, I will start with what I just talked about. So, so you just graduated with your MBA from Temple yesterday. Um, how was that alleviating? Um, nervous about heading out with it done now?
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that it's done. And uh, it's actually like, side note, it's not done. I still have, literally, I have another assignment due, and I just oh, graduated no. yesterday. How stupid <laughs> is that? <laughs> uh, but well, was, how does that work? It's Well, you know how at graduation, they don't actually give you your diploma, right? right. right. So I'm guessing that the, the process for them is, you know, we make sure that you successfully complete the course with the final assignment that's due next Wednesday, mm-hmm. and then six to eight weeks later, they send you your actual diploma. So I'm okay. guessing they're going to like, put a hold on my grade or a hold on the diploma unless I... Submit this final assignment, and then they'll let the diploma go out in the mail. But yeah, I'm excited that I'm, I'm done with this. Uh, it was—it's been about 20, 21 months, um, and I did it at full bore. I uh, just wanted to, you know, get it done, and it went really, really well, and I learned a lot, so it was good.
1: So also, like, how are you? I mean, how are you uh, juggling? So you're—you're you're doing your MBA. You, you've got a family. Um, I assume you're still training to a greater or lesser degree, and you have a job. So, like, for any sane person. That seems like a lot. Like, how do, you, how do you manage all that?
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of prioritizing going on the last, especially the last six weeks, because my MBA program was finishing up. And there's essentially like this culminating project called Capstone that was pretty intense. And it was that on top of the fact that I have a wife and two kids, they're one and two years old, they're Irish twins. We didn't meet it that way. <laughs> um, and uh, between that and the fact that I just started working at UCAN four months ago, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very, very steep learning curve there and really, really busy trying to get the business off the ground there. And um, between all those different things, training is now priority number five or whatever it might be on the list, maybe even mm-hmm. six. So, I've I've literally done almost nothing for like a month now, maybe even a month and a half. Like I, I went on a run the other day for 1.8 miles, 1.8 miles, like nothing, right? Mm-hmm. I was dying. My lungs were burning. Like, yeah. so out of shape.
1: <laughs> it's always like to to me, it's always frustrating and, and surprising. Somehow, you you take off what seems like not that much time. You know, a month. I'm, I'm you know in the spectrum of your life, like a month isn't that long. But then, yeah, you go out for that just what should be the easiest. Absolutely, I mean, you you won Ironman Maryland. You know, for Pete's sake, like <sighs> you could. You're pretty good. You've been in pretty good shape, and then you go out for not even two miles and. It, it it's like the hardest thing you've done in a long time. Exactly. It's always the surprising to me there, how much it hurts.
0: The bottom line there is training works.
1: Right. <laughs> and you have to keep up with it or it, it it falls away fast.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know it'll come back fast though. Like what's, you know, you can get back way faster to where you've been than to try to chart new territory.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, it's it's like it's almost like uh, you've worn that groove in so it's like it's easier to hop back in it versus you know, carving out new material. Definitely.
0: And I do plan on getting back into it a little bit. Uh, I don't know exactly how much yet, so I'm not going to disclose too much, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Ironman's on the plan. That's for sure. Not anytime soon. Uh, yeah. I did less than 70.3 last year, but I probably won't even do a half Ironman this year. I might do some like running or cycling events or a sprint or Olympic, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but I'll be getting back into more shape. And I think at some point in my life, I will be going back uh, to, Take a stab at a Kona podium slot. So uh, Mm -hmm. that didn't happen in two thousand fifteen. So I feel like I have some unfinished
1: business there. Yeah. Um, So I'll take it. That's. I mean, that's your. So obviously that's your strong point. But is it a matter of it's your strong point, and you enjoy that distance, or or like do you enjoy the shorter distances, but you're like, well, I'm better at the longer ones.
0: I, th- I think it's really a combination. I think it's just the fact that I'm better at the longer stuff, that I kind of like the longer stuff. I wish that I could be, you know, I coached cross country and track and field for a while and I still am doing a, a bit of that right now. I'm advising uh, the team at Montclair Kimberly Academy, a small private school in New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, where I was coaching for a couple of years after uh, the late, great Tom Fleming uh, was coaching there. Um, so I was coaching them. And one of the things that I noticed is, you know, like, and it all happened through high school too, like, you know, these, these sprinters that are born with just sprinting ability like they work hard but endurance running endurance training is so much more grueling than mm-hmm. sprinting training so i wish i was a sprinter with all this natural born talent to just run 100 meters really fast because that i feel like that life is just so much more uh i don't know enjoyable and less grueling than some
1: of the endurance training that needs to happen to be an Ironman. man it always seemed like uh this is obviously anecdotal because i wasn't a part of the training, I too am not uh, the best sprinter in the world, um, but it always seemed like when I watched the sprinters, it was like they would do more drills than it, than working out almost, or it's like working on your starts, you know, working on like all the efficiency of your biomechanics versus all right, you know, getting ready for a 5k, and then like uh, one of my favorite sets would be like eight to ten times a thousand meters. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're putting in the work there. Trying okay. to get ready for a you know fifteen sixteen minute race, so
0: yeah, that's exactly it. Like, you, how much how painful can drills be, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but when you're like eight deep in a ten by one k, that's a you're you're suffering. Yeah. Well, if you're doing it right. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. If you're trying to get better, um, so this is something I'm I'm always curious about because I've talked to several people, um, including earlier in the week I did a recording with a guy named Chris Douglas who. He's he qualified for his pro card and he had other priorities to not do that. Obviously, you know, you've qualified several times over several years ago. Um, so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about kind of what happened to you or what decisions led to not moving forward with that.
0: Yeah. It's a good question. Uh something I really debated for quite a while and I think a lot of amateurs kind of debate, you know, should I take the pro card, should I not? And um, for me, the decision was I was I was trying to go pro. So back in two thousand, after I went on my Maryland in two thousand fourteen, uh, in two thousand fifteen, and then in two thousand sixteen, uh, I was really kind of taking a stab at it. And the, the main portion for me was I was working on Wall Street. I was making good money, and I needed to be able to support my family, my wife, and my soon-to-be you know family with kids and everything, mm-hmm. uh, and a mortgage in a nice area in, in New Jersey in Summit, New Jersey. Um, so. I had to make sure that the, I could make ends meet financially.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and what most pros do is live on couches, and I'm not going to make my wife live on a couch so that I can pursue this dream. So yeah. I needed to kind of make things a little more buttoned up before I jumped um, any sort of you know full-time job to go give that a, a full-time shot in pro triathlon. So that was definitely one of the big barriers there was you know if, I, if I'm going to go, like one of the things for me is I'm, if I'm going to go pro, I'm going to really try to go pro, like be a pro. Right, Mm -hmm. be a a full time, you know, make a living off of it, kind of, kind of pro. Um, And and there's nothing, nothing against, you know, all the people out there, and there's tons of them that uh, take the pro card and then they race professionally. Uh, And I even considered doing that for a little bit, but um, ultimately came to that decision, like I just mentioned, like if I want to, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to completely do it. Um, And I I just never got to the point where financially I could make ends meet. And then the other factor was I I, I ended up having a couple kids, Um, Mm. and then the other factor was um, that I, I ended up getting injured in 2016.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and in 2015, I discovered I had hormone issues from making some mistakes in my training and my fueling mm-hmm. um, that caused some hormone issues like low testosterone. And then I also noticed uh, that I had low bone density, which right. caused uh, a hip issue. Um, so I had, I had in my, I was actually on my hip, it was my femur, um, but my femoral neck had a, a small uh stress reaction in it. And I discovered that right after Boston Marathon 2016. And then I ended up kind of being scared and said, let's stop. I need to figure out what's going on here and try to get my bone density back. And uh, so, that was kind of a a process to get my hormone levels back and then my bone density back to some degree. That never really comes fully back. Um, And so, all of that combined kind of just made it And then I went back to business school. Like all these things, kind of just happened at around the same time. That Mm -hmm. all of it just led to this decision. Like I'm not going to make a stab at going pro. And you know, instead, let's go back to refocus my efforts on family, going back to school, making this transition from Wall Street to something else. At the time, I didn't know what it would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, you know, we can go into what that turned out to be uh, in a moment.
1: So, with with the the issue in your hip, was that like? like a pre-stress fracture or what? what, Can you explain more about what that was specifically? Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly. So, it's a a stress reaction is essentially what you just said, a a pre-stress fracture. So, Boston Marathon, I ended up running 10 miles of that race. I didn't run the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. I think if I ran the whole thing, I'm almost certain I would have had a stress fracture by the end of it. Mm -hmm. And it's in a very bad spot. It's on a a point of, I think it's called a point of compression. Um, I I forgot what it is exactly, but it's on, on my femoral neck. It's the more dangerous side of the femoral neck. Mm-hmm. And if I had a stress fracture there, I would have probably been in like a full leg cast or a wheelchair or crutches for like probably six months or something. Mm-hmm. So, it would have been really, really bad. So, I decided even beforehand, I didn't know I had a stress reaction. I just thought I had some hip impingement or something, some inflammation. So, I, I knew I could run 10 miles of the Boston Marathon So without having too many issues from it. So, I did that and I just ran with a buddy. Um, and my buddy's name is Olden Bismagian. And I ran with him for like ten miles at six-minute pace alongside him, and and just cut it at that point. I just hopped mm-hmm. on a subway, um, and it's good I did because I would have been in really really bad shape after that.
1: So i was kind of curious about like uh, pain management. So I I had a pre stress fracture in one of my shins during college, and uh, ran several races. I mean I rem- I remember running a uh, 5K indoor indoor conference, and starting out not too much, but I was in. A serious amount of pain by the end of the race. Like you know it was short enough that I finished it. It wasn't like I went out and ran ten miles. But I mean, like what kind of discomfort are you going through in that in that ten mile period? Is it just like a normal ache and pain, or does it is it building?
0: It was kind of just an ache. and and uh, you know you know I mean, you're an a- you're a high level athlete. like you you know that when you start racing and when you're especially when you're racing, like you've got a lot of endorphins flowing through your system mm-hmm. and a lot of things that are kind of stopping that pain from being there. So during that ten miles, I, my level of discomfort was like a three.
1: Okay.
0: And it didn't really like I could definitely have completed the marathon, but I'm almost positive that if I either by by the end of the race or um, or maybe several hours later, I would have been in a bad bad place. Uh, mm-hmm. but, and you're also again a high level athlete, so pain you know your pain tolerance is probably way better than your average person, like mine is. Like it's, I've got pretty good pain tolerance, and I think it's just yeah.
1: all these years of suffering. Well, it almost to me it's almost like there are certain kinds of pains. Like if I stub my toe, like that, that affects me more than, you know, if we're going to go out and run like threshold, like threshold intervals or something on the track that, that kind of stuff is almost more just like a gauge rather than pain. You know what I mean? It's like almost disassociated at this point. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You're using that like perceived effort as a right. level of suffering or it's, it's almost more like, like people use the word pain a lot, but to me, it's almost more discomfort than it is pain.
1: Right. Well, there's, you know, I, unfortunately, the English language is a little bit stunted in this area. Maybe Germans better. They've got so many words for everything. <laughs> but like, there's, there's different kinds of pain, you know. And I when you go to the doctor to try to diagnose something, they'll say, you know, things like, is it burning? Is it shooting? Is it stabbing? And they'll try to describe these kinds of pain. So it's like I, I feel like using the word pain is almost um Obtuse when you're trying to describe the the experience you're going through running versus like getting punched in the face or something like it's a it's a very different experience. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So so how do you deal with so you had low bone density? I think I read in your blog where you were diagnosed with osteoporosis. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So I mean, pe- people have different measures of osteoporosis. I think the different institutes that are out there have either used negative mm-hmm. two or negative two point five. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I had negative two point zero. So according to some, I don't, I never did. I only had osteopenia. According okay. to some, I was right on the border of having osteoporosis, which is, that was like a huge wake up call for me. And like I said, that's one of the reasons why I was like, Hey, I need to pull the cord here and not cause myself any sort of long-term damage that's going to affect the rest of my life, especially when I'm 60, 70 years old. I don't want to be, you know, in a wheelchair or something because I, I, my bones can't support me. So I needed to make sure that I wasn't doing it myself any more harm. Um, but since then, my negative two has gone up to about a negative 1.6, negative 1.7. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because my hormones just came back. Uh, I was able to naturally restore my testosterone levels. And, um, and it's partly because um, I was only 29, 30 years old at the time. And that's sort of on the tail end, but still in the range where you're building bo- uh, bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that I'm 32, it's, you know, I'm not probably not building bone really anymore. So whatever I've got, I've got. And this is enough for me to be able to run. 30 or 40 miles a week. I don't know if I can run 40, 50, 60 miles a week uh, given my bone density now. I haven't been able to test that yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, would you, you know, I want to get to the testosterone stuff here in, in, in a minute, but would you, t- to kind of like improve your health and then improve that, I'll like say bone density score and the actual bone density. I mean, are you, are you just Taking rest, are you taking supplements? Like, you know, what changes to kind of move you forward in like in a positive, you know, positive direction?
0: Mm -hmm. The the area is not that well known. Now, most people don't know. Even doctors, I I I met with an endocrinologist who had no idea that endurance training could be linked to low testosterone. Mm -hmm. And it's something that people should be aware of because if you're uh, overtraining that's what it could cause. And most people don't end up having their testosterone levels measured, so they have no idea. And the the symptoms are you feel tired and you have low libido, and maybe you have sleep disturbances, maybe you're moody. Uh, The the symptoms that people experience are a little different depending on who you are and how bad it is. Um, But if you're you're noticing any of those things in yourself, go get your testosterone levels checked. Mm -hmm. It's covered by insurance. You just need to explain what's going on. Tell your doctor what you suspect might be happening Nine times out of 10, they're going to be like, oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's have a, you know, some blood work done and we'll run your testosterone levels. And -hmm. if it comes back and you're at like 100, you know, total testosterone, boom, you've got your answer for why you're so chronically fatigued, why you've low libido and all these, all these things. Mm -hmm. You, what people say, like for me and for years, and what most people say is, I'm just training really hard and that's why I'm tired. And yeah, you're right. But it's deeper than just a superficial tired that people complain about all the time. It's, it's a biological thing where you when you end up with the low testosterone that you you're chronically fatigued for a biological reason and you have low libido. And, you know, for me, I mean, I don't know if this is too personal or not, but I didn't want to have sex for weeks, mm-hmm. weeks on end. I did no desire. And that was really strange because I was 29 years old. I was like, that is not supposed mm-hmm. to be how it's supposed to be. Uh, so that to me was like one of the triggers saying, I need to get this thing looked into. And uh, Cody Beals, uh, the pro athlete. Uh, he would, he wrote, he's written about that on his blog mm-hmm. and he was the one by reading his blog that kind of tipped me off to this idea that maybe I should be looking into this. So the things that kind of help it when I was trying to reverse it, um, bringing back that balance. So one of the biggest pieces is the nutritional side of things. And I was, uh, I was just taking in too few calories and I was eating probably like three to 4,000 calories a day, maybe, but it just wasn't enough given how mm. much i was doing i was doing mm. a lot of training at the time and it just wasn't enough to to support what i was actually doing so if you're running at like a 750 calorie deficit or more per day then you can end up into some real trouble with your hormones uh that's one piece of it the other piece is that endurance training in general just does affect your testosterone levels and mm. the average testosterone level in the studies for endurance athletes like ultramarathoners, marathoners marathoners ironman athletes tends to be uh, I, I think it's something like one or 200 Total testosterone less than your average uh, average person. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to give some perspective, like you got three hundred to a thousand is typically approximately the range that they use for normal. Right. right. And I was at one fifty at one point, and Ryan Hall was at like five, like he was almost nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, average for somebody my age at twenty nine is about six hundred. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was at one fifty, and people tend to experience symptoms when it gets below around three hundred, and after I started naturally just restoring balance in my life and using some natural supplements, like I was taking vitamin D, omega-3s, zinc, um, a handful of natural supplements like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I was able to restore my testosterone levels and just using time, right, and a a better like training balance and nutrition balance, adding some body fat to myself. I was able to get back up to the point of around three or 400 within two or three months. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to get back up to around 600 after, uh, I guess it was probably about eight months or a year. And now last I checked, it was like high 600. So perfectly Mm -hmm. normal again, but it was kind of scary.
1: Yeah. I actually went through, I I don't know. I was never tested that quite that low, but it it was first brought to me as a potential issue actually by, um, what I was post-college and I started meeting with a nutritionist who was actually like a bodybuilder, like one of these like super jack, there's no way he's not taking steroids size bodybuilders, like very big guy. And he measured body fat on me and just by the amount of body fat I carried and where it was placed, he was like, you might check that out. Mm. And at the time.
0: What was um, your body fat
1: percentage? At that time? Yeah. Um, I think it was like. 11 12 percent something like that it seems to stick around there i think i've gotten as low as eight but i have a hard time getting real lean i, I actually usually um so like when i'm hanging out with you know all the guys at nationals and um the kind of like high level guys i always describe myself as the fat guy in the group Like, i don't have a, i've never had a six-pack ever uh which that's like he was like with the amount of training you're doing, that seems very odd. Uh, I tested a low 300. So, technically, it was still in range. I think it was like 311 or something like just barely in range.
0: Did you ever um, notice some of those symptoms I was mentioning?
1: Yeah, no, I definitely did. And as I saw you were talking about it, so I was wondering if you read Cody Beale's blog post about it because he definitely talked about it and I, you I know, kind of commented on his blog with him and uh, had a very, very short chat. Um but yeah, I—that's I, I, one of the things my coaches wanted me to do this year—is like go back and test it again, make sure everything's right. And I just haven't, out of probably laziness more than anything, laziness and busyness. Um, but yeah, it's like so—it's always kind of interesting. Cause it's not really talked about that much, but it seems like a very, very common experience because we have such high levels of cortisol, and that suppresses testosterone, testosterone production, as far as I'm aware.
0: Yeah, there, there seems to be, there, there may be a link between cortisol and testosterone levels and uh, it, it's definitely in most, almost all cases. So I do some consulting on this too, like people mm. um, who have these issues or are noticing these symptoms, sometimes they'll come to me through my website um, and then ask if, you know, for some consulting. So it's, I'll either do like a 30-minute phone call or I'll do a, a more in-depth uh, consultation where they mm. You know, they share with me lots and lots of data and things that they've done in the past or like, you know, a whole write up on uh, what what their food is like and, and all of this. So I'll go over it with them and then provide recommendations on how they can um, correct things. Mm. Um, and it's it's pretty prevalent. Um, you really most people don't know about it, so they don't know what they're going through, what they're experiencing. But it's more than just being tired. It's it's often biological, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you had mentioned, people say, "Well, I'm just training a lot, so obviously I'm tired." And I think, you know, at the time, being younger, you know, I was, I was thinking about 22, at the time that I did that test. Um, it was definitely like, well, of course, I think it was probably an issue all throughout college. I had a terrible time getting to sleep in college. It would be, either it would be I couldn't sleep more than four hours a night, or I'd be sleeping. Eleven to twelve hours a day, mm. one or the other, and uh, just chronic fatigue, and then racing four seasons as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just so I, I I can definitely like sympathize with that. Um, I think I had read something, or maybe, no, maybe it was in another podcast you did um, that you were I don't know that you were the lead, but you were helping with a, a like a study on endurance athletes and testosterone. Did yeah. that? Did you guys find enough participants? How did that? How did that all go?
0: Yeah, it's being conducted right now. I think it's still. It might still be going, or maybe they're just wrapping it up and writing the paper. But uh, it was done at Rutgers, and mm-hmm. uh, they found enough participants. So I'm not sure the exact number that they had in the end uh, that completed the full the full study. Uh, I need to check t- check in with those guys again and see how it went. Because at the at, at that point, I was just trying to help get it started, and then at that point, it was in their hands. They had to do all that they had to do to be really rigorous and independent and uh, mm-hmm. kind of like unbiased about everything. And right. So I I left it in their hands for the most part, but yeah, I do have to check back in with them and see how it all went.
1: Okay, I was like, because I I think the podcast I listened to was like from 2016. You had mentioned it, something about it being a year long. So I was like, all right, maybe the results will be back in from that. We can kind of figure out, like, as far as you know, the periodization training cycles go, and like how that affects people. So it's a little disappointing you don't have any uh, (laughs) evidence for us or results for us (laughs) quite yet.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe we'll have to do a follow up one. But uh, I I could tell you just from my n equals one experience that when I increased training, my T levels went down. When I uh, reduced training, my T levels went back up. Uh, it, there's definitely some cycl- cyclical you know nature to that. Yeah, but the the study should help help with that more.
1: So I'm kind of curious, like in your opinion, if there's, I mean, is there any way to have a high level of training and also not you know, majorly adversely affect your testosterone?
0: So I, I, I do believe, and I have some evidence just using myself and some of the athletes that I've consulted with that you Mm -hmm. can train at a pretty high level and a pretty large amount of volume and still have relatively normal testosterone levels. And what I mean by that is, well, Cody, Cody's a great example. Actually, Cody Mm -hmm. um, had problems before, but he's restored his, he was back in the middle of the range. he, Is intensely training. He won a couple Ironmans last year, Mm -hmm. uh, and yet he has normal testosterone levels still. And I touch base with him every once in a while to see how things are going on that front and on other fronts. And um, he's done a great job of finding that balance that works for him. And it's not surprising that a lot of Ironman athletes do pack on a little, a few extra pounds. Like Mm -hmm. uh, I think Mark Allen is the one that's famous for saying something like, "You know, you got to be fat in July to race well in October." Mm-hmm. Like You can't always be really, really, really lean year round, or you could end up with these long term issues like mm-hmm. hormone issues. Right.
1: Uh,
0: so some a little bit of like, you know, packing on a few extra pounds could be a good thing. Plus, plus, it's just good to be as an Ironman athlete. Like it's better to be strong and healthy and fit than it is to be ultra lean and sort of strong
1: mm-hmm. and
0: probably chronically unhealthy. Over you know, if you if you
1: wait long enough. I think both in like running culture and triathlon culture, there's there's a lot of mm, it's almost like a pissing contest sometimes, like about how lean or how little people weigh. Like that's the measure of a great athlete. It's like, no, I'm super light, or no, I no I'm lighter than that. And where it it doesn't always actually equate to real results. I wish I could remember uh, this. Female pro, she's a a runner, and she she I read an article about her where like people would almost like snicker at her because she's like so much bigger than all the other girls. She's not big by any means, mm-hmm. but just like everybody's a rail and she's not. And then she goes on to essentially beat everybody and mm-hmm. talks about you know her experience not being so thin and being stronger instead of um, just lean. Mm-hmm. So.
0: It's like... Fortunately, the trend seems to be mm. like, um, I forgot what the phrase was, but it was something like strong is the new thin or something like mm-hmm. for, for women. If you if you've got some muscles like these days, that's becoming much more accepted that you're mm-hmm. strong, you're fit that versus just being this rail who's not fit, not working out anorexic, maybe like having maybe some some eating disorders of some sort. And you're ridiculously thin like that. That's, I think, kind of coming out of popularity, which is kind of a good thing to see. Well, definitely a good thing to see because it's, it's encouraging, hopefully, people to be more healthy and not just totally living up to the, the way that people want them to to look.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think sometimes I, I guess I agree with that ethos, but at the same time, I think it can get a little bit overboard. So I have a tough time with like, how do you balance like a new zeitgeist with you know actually finding an optimal way to live, if I can phrase it that way, like really that that balance where it's like you're not going overboard. You're still able to have a happy life. You're not so, you know, obsessed about whatever it is that you've, you know, gone past the point of positive gains into, you know, overexhaustion or or whatever it is that it's negative be it your health or your mood or whatever it is like that because you know there's always the the newest thing like uh, i don't know if it's keto or keto but like that diet is a new thing there's always a new diet It's so i guess i'm always a little bit skeptical not necessarily about being strong but just whenever a new focus like that comes into play i always kind of want to step back and think okay, is this, what efficacy does this have? And are there any necessarily bad, like negative side effects to whatever it is that's happening?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, I said, I, I, my, my rule of thumb is if it's extreme, it's probably not good. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so for me, I've practiced a lot of balance now, you know, I, and I think that's just been the trend over my life. Like there's been periods where I've taken things to the extreme and I've sometimes I've kind of, regretted that I've done it because sometimes when you take it to the extreme like that, you, you end up in trouble. So, um, balance tends to be best also for performance in many cases, and longevity in the sport.
1: Uh, so, I want to jump back a little bit. I I'm, So, you worked on Wall Street for, for nine years. I'm kind of curious like, what did you do on Wall Street? And like, how, how was your time there, I guess?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a, a degree in, my undergraduate degree was in finance and investment management. And right from there, I went to work for a, a firm called JWM Partners, which was uh, John Merriweather's um, second hedge fund. So if, if anybody's in finance that's listening that remembers uh, John Merriweather, he blew up long-term capital management in spectacularly. And it, it was uh, the first hedge fund ever bailed out by the government, the U.S. government. Um, so he, then people apparently were stupid enough to give him money again. And he started another fund. And I worked there uh, until that fund went down, um, not so spectacularly, but it it went down as well. Um, so that, I was there for five months, and then from there I went to uh, Direction, which is a leveraged ETF provider. I was a trader and portfolio manager for them, and then I went from there to Scout Trading, which is this was a small um, broker dealer. It was a high-frequency trading firm. I was um, I was the trader for them and helping develop strategies. Um, we were a prop fund, so. Uh, We had money from our partners, the the people who were running the firm, running the firm, and we traded their money and whatever money was made uh, went back to the partners or and us uh, in in terms of bonuses. So it was kind Mm -hmm. of a a fantastic opportunity. Um, We ended up shuttering the the, the firm, though, and um, they moved me over into Ophir Partners, which is a hedge fund that was focused on statistical arbitrage. And it was mm-hmm. a sister company to Scout Trading. So I, I just moved over from one company to the next, uh, same boss, same guy running the firm. Uh, and so th- that was my journey in Wall Street. And I was there for nine years. And uh, it was it was good. Like, I love finance and I love the markets and uh, numbers. I'm, I'm good with numbers. Uh, but while I was in, working on Wall Street, I was marathoning. I was doing triathlons ever since 2010. And while I was there, I was... I, that's when I won Ironman Maryland, two thousand fourteen. I was still on Wall Street. Two thousand fifteen, I did Kona. Uh, I was seventy second there. I was still on Wall Street there. Mm-hmm. Um, two thousand sixteen, I was uh, doing a lot of training until then. I, the issues um, arose, and I ended up stopping for for a while. And then, you know, then I decided I, I want to make a switch here. I want to make a, a full switch, like a career move to um, uh, something in my passion. I wanted to come to athletics in some way. Um, so I couldn't become a pro triathlete or I decided I didn't want to try going down that path anymore. Um, but this, you know, this opportunity kind of was always in the back of my head to work at UCAN. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started using it before Ironman Maryland and had huge success with it. And it, it kind of unlocked some of the potential that I knew I had. Um, so I ended up uh, coming on full time with them just four months ago. And I graduated, like, like I said, yesterday um, from my MBA program. Uh, so I, their, their career move is complete.
1: Okay. So um, I, I know Celia had uh, recommended I talk to you, and she described you as a very smart guy. Um, so, you know, it's it's always curious to me. Like, I have another friend who's also in triathlon, and he wants to be an investment banker, or at least last I talked to him. Um, how do you, I mean, you're making. I don't need to know your salary, that's not important. but we know you know generally on Wall Street, people are having pretty good success financially. Uh, I would assume your upsides probably not as high that you can um, unless you're getting stock options of some sort. So like how do you walk away from a salary that most people would be you know very happy to ever reach?
0: Yeah, the question for me was, do I want to continue working on Wall Street, and commute three plus hours a day, and work eight to ten to twelve to you know fourteen plus hours a day, Mm. and not know my kids, and make two, three, five hundred thousand, a million, possibly many millions of dollars in a year if things Mm. go well, is not outside the realm of possibility. Right. Uh, Or do I want to, you know, would I be would I be happier? Working for, hundred k, hundred fifty k, two hundred k for the rest of my life, like no more than probably that amount of money. Then, but be really happy doing it,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: passionate about what I'm doing, and knowing my kids, and having better life work you know work life balance. Um, would would I take that? And absolutely. And that's what I'm doing
1: right now. That's fair enough. Um, you know, so as an entrepreneur myself, I, I kind of get mixed messages from various I'll call them gurus, but business people. And uh, there's one in particular that always likes to say, work-life balance is bullshit. Like, <laughs> either if if you want to succeed, like, business is war, there is no such thing as work-life balance. And then you get other people that are like, you know, build a lifestyle business so that you can have, you know, the time with your family, time to go on vacation, all that kind of thing. So, it's, it's just both messages are out there. And I think for different people, they certainly resonate. So it's always like, it's just a personal curiosity of mine to hear, you know, how you come to that decision, just because for people that don't have money, you know, it can be such a focus to say, if I had X dollars, I would be happy. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, well, one of the things that kind of illustrates it for me, if why would I want to work on on Wall Street and make Millions of dollars, and I don't even get to spend it with those I love.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm always working, so what good is it?
1: Right. right.
0: Got, I mean, to me, anyway, that's my view. You know, I want to I be able to spend it with those that I love, not let them spend it while I'm working.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So this
1: is a little bit in, like I'll call it an esoteric question, but um, kind of off the cuff. A lot of, I have an opinion on what money is, and I won't share with that quite yet. But I want to see if you have an opinion on besides like numbers or physical paper, like, do you have a thought on what money is? So, the way I view it is that everything is relative. And if
0: somebody were guaranteed to have, I think there's been studies done on this, I'm almost positive there has. Like if if somebody linearly makes more and more and more and more money over time. Mm. And so their standard of living goes up and up and up and up throughout their life. Like, are they going to be happier than somebody who makes more money than that, that other person ever made in one year? And then it plummets down to nothing, like they lose all their wealth somehow. Like that person's probably a w- lot less happy, even though they, they had a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they, you know, th- the expectations, I think it's kind of like that. That's my view. Is like you want, you want to know that things are better in the future. Have this hope and that tomorrow is going to be even better than today. Mm-hmm. And having that I feel like kind of contributes to at least for me, my happiness.
1: Uh, yeah. I, so, I, I kind of think about money as like, I don't know if you've ever gotten this, but there's this kind of mentality where it's like people who make a lot of money are evil or bad. So, I think it's definitely played out as like Wall Street versus Main Street. And like that kind of stuff. So that's part of my kind of curiosity since you actually did work on Wall Street. Um, though I, I think that's completely wrong. Like, in my opinion, money is a store of value. Like, as, and as an entrepreneur, like, I, the way I view the creation of money is like, I have to provide value for it to come to me. Like, you don't just take money from people, they give it to you because you've Given them more than what they believe the value of that money is.
0: Exactly. Like,
1: you know, if if something's worth twenty dollars, but I only provide ten dollars worth of value, well, if somebody has an option. They're probably not going to, you know, make that trade. But if I provide fifty dollars of value, but I only want twenty dollars, well, then that should be a no-brainer. So it's anyway. So like, no, we're getting very we cool we get involved in money. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just not a it's not, just not a conversation you can have with just anybody, um, because I mean, especially my own family. Um, I'm the only entrepreneur, so it's just a different way of kind of looking at things. So I'm always kind of curious, you know, people who have had high-paying jobs. How do they view money? And then, and then you make the switch to you can. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious. I mean, how do you go from finance to, I guess I don't know exactly what you do at UCAN now. You you'd mentioned um, bringing UCAN more into the triathlon world. So what, what specifically are you doing at the company? Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm the director of the triathlon business at UCAN, which means that my role is, a, is mostly marketing. I'm mostly raising education and awareness of UCAN in the triathlon world. So right now, education and awareness of UCAN in the triathlon world is is not that high. Like it, mm-hmm. it's bigger in the running space, uh, and that's mainly just mainly a kind of a coincidental thing. Like we had ever since our founding, about nine or ten years ago, we've had Meb Kafleski using Ucan, and mm. he was using it before it was even a brand, before it was even a company. He was getting it in like white plastic bags, and I'm sure that was kind of sketchy. <laughs> it was white powder, <laughs> um, but you know he he was one major asset and still is one major asset for our firm. And a number of other assets and the, um, and influencers that have driven popularity of can in running have helped. And it's also because of the fact that the company, uh, the people that work at the company, had a lot of expertise in running. They, they knew the space well, but they didn't know Triathlon as well. Mm-hmm. So um, once, you know, last year, uh, a venture capital firm, the venture capital arm of Kellogg, uh, invested money in our company. Mm-hmm. So we now finally have resources to play with, not mm. to play with, resources to invest, to devote to the growth of the company. Right. And one of the ways that they've done that is by hiring me so that we can enter the triathlon world in a meaningful and significant way. Um, so our three main focuses are running, which is our biggest segment, fit uh, fitness and triathlon.
1: So does that mean that you're heading out to expos and shaking hands or are you like directing people to do all these activities?
0: Yeah, great question. So, it's it's my main role is the directing of where those marketing efforts are going to go. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of ways that we can be in front of the right people. We want to reach the right people at the right time and deliver the right message so that they understand what UCAN is and why it's compelling for them to use in their endeavors, their athletic endeavors. Mm-hmm. That's the main goal that I'm, I'm trying to accomplish and those methods could be setting, you know, my, my purpose here is to put together the plan as to what approach we're going to take to get in front of those people in the right way with the right message. And that might be expos like some combination of, of expos of race sponsorships of mm-hmm. sponsoring high level athletes. It might be, uh, using social media and content on social media, or it could be email marketing campaigns, um, could be developing content with some influencers and bringing on coaches and nutritionists who know and understand the product and we could support them and, and, you know, raise a following through their influence in the, in the, uh, the mm-hmm. world of, of triathlon, uh, ambassador program we have right now, um, could be, you know, utilized in, in even a bigger way to grow the presence of you can and try.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, as a numbers guy, since I'm more familiar with like digital marketing and a lot of what digital marketers talk about, and it's all about metrics, like you're designing this particular sales funnel, however convoluted they can get, as I'm sure you're aware, they can be very, very complicated because people are complicated and they enter funnel at all kinds of stages. I mean, are you sitting there and actually trying to track metrics from all those kind of things You know, at the expo visit from the ambassadors? Um, Do you look at all the numbers, or is it, uh, I'll say, softer than that? Mm -hmm. We try to make it as
0: concrete as possible, and we are measuring a lot. And the measurements dictate to us how successful each of the, like, we can look at those measurements and see how successful each of those approaches are Mm -hmm. in terms of a cost-benefit analysis and how scalable it could be. Right. And then deploy those in the way that is going to get us the most, you know, new users and the most, uh, you know, loyal customers and people who are just, you know, can fans. We want them to be diehard fans, like they mm-hmm. understand what it does and why it's compelling for them, and they just want to keep coming back for more because it's amazing and it's making their, you know, they're hitting their goals, right? Right.
1: right.
0: So we, yeah, we're very much measurement based, and we're we're using that as indications of what um, our approach should be, okay. what the mix should be.
1: So actually, that that kind of leads me to so where can, we can go back and say, like what is ucan and you know what why why is it important why does it matter yeah, we should probably yeah we should probably talk about that huh <laughs> there's probably some listeners
0: who are like what the hell is this stuff and yeah. they're like zoning out already so um yeah ucan is uh, a complex carbohydrate or what what underlies ucan is is called super starch and it's a complex carbohydrate that gives you energy without the spike and crash that you get from sugar so most, well, all of the sports nutrition products out there are some form of a simple sugar. It's either, most of them, a lot of them are maltodextrin, which is considered complex, but it's really a pretty simple sugar, very simple sugar compared to what super starch is. Or they're fructose, or they're glucose, or they're, they're some very simple sugar, smaller complex mo- molecule, or a smaller um, carbohydrate molecule that for many people causes issues in their races. So I'll use my own story as an example and the reason why I'm such a believer in it for my first four Ironman events I used the conventional approach. I was taking in I was trying to take in about 300 calories twice my body weight in calories Worth of carb worth of worth of calories per hour Mm -hmm. That's what I was told is like a good rule of thumb So I'm trying to take in 300 calories per hour And I was only able to manage something like 230 calories per hour during my first four Ironmans because I, I would get to like my ninth gel And I'm like, I just don't want this anymore. Mm -hmm. It it like sickens me just to look at this thing because I've had eight of them already. (laughs) I don't know if anybody's experienced that, but I suggest. Yeah, uh, I I
1: definitely have with um, sports drinks that have a sweet flavor. Like the sports drink I use now is a is a tart lemon lime, and it doesn't bother me near as much because of the tartness, I think.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. So I I I tried all of them. Like I used, you know, it sounds like maybe you're using Scratch or something, but. I tried EFS, it, but, EFS. Okay, that was yeah. one of the, that was actually the one I was using right before I made the switch to UCAN. Yeah. Uh, EFS scratch Gatorade endurance, like you name it, I tried it. Uh, mm-hmm. I was using goo, I was using the blocks, like everything I've tried, mm-hmm. and it all kind of did the same thing because they're all under you know what underlies them is essentially the same thing. It's a simple sugar. Yeah. Uh, and so I had issues like GI issues, stomach aches, bloating, you know, in the porta potty when. That's not a good idea when you're supposed to be running a marathon, mm-hmm. uh, all those issues. And I, I had issues during my first four Ironmans, majorly in two of them, walking parts of the marathon, obviously not living up to my expe- my performance that I know I could do. And mm-hmm. then two of them, I had relatively minor issues to the point where I was able to run okay, like well enough to, to do well enough right? to get um, like to Kona in 2013. I was able to qualify using this conventional approach. And then in 2014, I finally said, I'm done playing this Russian roulette. I've trained so hard for these events, and it's a 50 50 whether I'm going to do terrible because of my nutrition. I just want, you know, and what, what you can allowed me to do, and teaching my body how to burn fat better as well you through mm-hmm. medical efficiency training. Through those two things, I was able to avoid any GI distress, and, no, and I've had no bonking issues since I started using that approach. Mm hmm. Um, and it allowed my fitness. And and so in 2014, uh, I won Ironman Maryland that was using UCAN. And I, what I found is that I was, I was trained and I was fit and I was ready. And in that instance, my nutrition didn't hold me back. It allowed my fitness to express itself in my, in my racing. And that's what I had been looking for. And I was able to do really, really well at Ironman Maryland. I chopped off 51 minutes on my, uh, my PR. I had gone nine forty two at Louisville. And then I went 851 at Ironman Maryland, won the race, uh, ran a three-flat marathon. And then the next year, I, I was top amateur at Eagleman, and I was sixth um, overall. Overall, So I was had beaten nine pros and lost to five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Kona, I was mm-hmm. 72nd overall. Uh, and that was all you, you, during Kona, I actually only had 68 calories an hour of UCAN, only UCAN during that entire race. Mm-hmm. And at Ironman Maryland, I was 94 calories an hour. Um, so that will really open my eyes to the fact that you can avoid GI distress, you can avoid blocking yeah, Use Ucan,
1: it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I, I, little, I did a little bit of research on Ucan, although not super in depth. So, like, can you tell us a little bit more about like what is SuperStarch? Like, how is it made? Where does it come from? Like, um, yeah, I'll start. How, right how do we back. get to where we are? I guess.
0: Yeah, the Ucan is or superstarch is a uh, is a complex carbohydrate, right? And it's it's made from non-GMO corn starch. Mm-hmm. They take non-GMO corn starch and they cook it over forty hours, so just using heat and water. It's an all-natural process, mm-hmm. and it elongates the carbohydrate molecule a lot to the point where it's becomes superstarch. And it, it it goes into your stomach very quickly. It absorbs very quickly into your stomach, but then it releases energy at a slower rate into your system. Um, and the foundings of it, I love the founding of the company and the, the, our origin story. It has noble origins. It's not some corporation, greedy corporation that wants to make money off of triathletes because they know that triathletes have money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a company that was created for these kids who have a rare metabolic disorder. Um, so, our founder's um, son is named Jonah, and he has this disorder. And what it means is that he needs to be fed cornstarch, like Argo cornstarch, off the shelf every two hours. Mm -hmm. in order to keep his blood sugar stable, day and night, and it's life-threatening. So, if overnight his parents miss an alarm, and they sleep through it, and they miss a feeding, he could have seizures and die. Very, very stressful for the parents. The kid is obviously not living a normal life, and Jonah dealt with that for nine years until a carbohydrate breakthrough was made through some scientists that uh, Jonah's parents were able to engage. And they found a solution. They, they had this carbohydrate break, uh, breakthrough, which created, they created super starch. Mm-hmm. And now Jonah can have the equivalent of two packets of you can before he goes to bed. And he can have a full night's sleep, eight hours straight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When he was nine years old, it was the first time he ever had a full night's sleep, eight hours straight. And his parents too, probably.
1: <laughs> right. So. Yeah. I, can't, I mean, I can't even imagine the, like the level of fatigue that you're dealing with at that point. Like, not to you know make light of the situation, but just like just trying to wrap my head around it, because it's like if I go, if I went two nights, three nights, and you know I said in college I had trouble, trouble sleeping. And it's just this like the irritability creeps up, and you become almost like a different person with that, without the you know, without proper amount of sleep. So just like for a kid to go through that, and it's always like it's always worse when kids have to go through anything, because that should be like the time when uh, it's kind of a trope, but like a time of innocence. where like, you, you don't, yeah. you like, you shouldn't have to deal with that kind of stuff as yeah. a kid. Like, he, he, you he, didn't do he, anything
0: wrong to to deserve this. Like, he, right. like, he's a perfectly, you know, good, nice little kid. He's nothing, you know. if You feel terrible for him.
1: Yeah. Um. So it's kind of. I think you already really addressed this, but it's like. What I was curious about was like the digestion time, since so like, it seems like typically longer chain carbohydrates take longer to digest. So it seems like it's a relatively quick digestion period and then a long release. So that's why it doesn't spike your insulin.
0: Yeah. So actually, the, the longer the carbohydrate molecule, the lower the osmolality, which means it goes into your system faster, into your, oh, okay. into your gut faster. Okay. Once it's into your system, I understand it'll it'll release the energy into your system at a slower rate because it takes time to break down that carbohydrate molecule.
1: Okay, okay. Um, so you're saying that the, the founders of the company had been – were they associated with these scientists or they were working on this this study? Or, like, it's – there's so many scientists working on so many things. I was just kind of curious, like, why were they even – Doing the research that would have led to this. Do you know?
0: Yeah, I, I only I don't want to get it wrong The first fem- well, origin funny. story and I got to talk to my show, my um, CEO again. Her name is Shoba Morali She's an impressive person and mm-hmm. I have to talk to her again to get make sure I have all the details straight in my head But I know the crux of it was that uh, Jonah's parents uh, Engaged with some scientists and it ultimately was some sc- scientists in Scotland that were the ones that discovered this process mm-hmm. of elongating the molecule and therefore producing what is superstarch, which is what underlies DPM.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like to me, that's like this is an aside, but it's almost like validation for why we do science. Like, you know, we as humans, we explore and do all these things that not don't necessarily have direct connections, but sometimes there's these like tangential discoveries that you know bring about something that's a solution to a problem. That we didn't know there was a solution. So it's kind of like it's kind of neat on top of being very practically helpful to you know people with this disorder, like the whole process of how that even happens. It wasn't just oh they have this disorder, we need to find a solution. It was like a very roundabout way they're all coming together.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, Matt, if people want to follow you? I know your blog slowed down a little bit since 2017, but I'm hoping as you get back into trading, I'll pick back up. <laughs> yeah. If people want to follow you, where can they find you?
0: Uh, so, yeah, I mean, my website's a great place to um, just check out you know, more about me. And um, it also has links to my Instagram, uh, which is at IronMattBach. And Facebook, you can find me on there as well. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, I think it's the same handle. It's at IronMattBach. And um, and that's probably the best places to find me. Um, also, I can uh, share with you for the notes uh, a, a code if people want to try. You can. Okay. Um, so the, and I, I can give it to you now, too. So the, the code sure. is athlete, and it'll be for 15% off if they want to give
1: it a shot. Okay. Um, I'll ask you this question, but I'm going to take a stab. I already know the answer. I ask everybody um, the same question because it varies so wildly. Um, I'm excited. If you, could, if you could only eat one thing for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you choose?
0: Well, I, I think I'd be remiss to say anything but you can, right? <laughs>
1: right. I was, like, I was like, we've just been talking about this. This seems like a pretty, like a, almost like a teed up question, like, right. what's it going to be? But I have to ask just because it, it, it's
0: anything. Well, yeah. But in this case, though, we haven't really talked about, uh, We can does have a protein-enhanced uh, two different flavors are protein-enhanced, okay. so chocolate and vanilla cream. So my choice would be the vanilla cream flavor. Uh, Meb likes the chocolate flavor, but I like the vanilla cream flavor even more. Uh, So I would have that as my recovery, my recovery drink. (laughs)
1: Good, Good deal. Thanks for coming on today, Matt.
0: I appreciate you having me.